Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 384 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the second part of a two-part interview, Andy Jackson speaks with John Greening about the patron saints of obscure and modern things, the sonnet as a design classic, anthologizing is the joy of involving other poets in daft ideas, and the fun of obituaries. You can hear the first part of this interview in the preceding episode, number 383. We rejoin Andy and John as they commence discussing Andy's third collection, The Saints Are Coming. Andy Jackson is a poet, blogger, editor and anthologist. Originally from Salford, he has lived in Scotland for the past three decades and was medical librarian at the University of Dundee. He's also worked for the NHS and lectured on digital and research skills. His first collection, The Assassination Museum, appeared from the Red Squirrel Press in 2010 and was reviewed enthusiastically by Ian Macmillan. It was followed by more slim volumes, notably A Beginner's Guide to Cheating, and in 2020, The Saints Are Coming, which John Glenn Day called consistently moving and praised for its formal precision. As an editor, Andy Jackson has particularly specialised in popular-themed anthologies in which contrasting or complementary poems are set side by side. Split Screen and its sequel, Double Bill, drew on poems inspired by film and TV, and the latter title was selected by Clive James as a Book of the Year. In 2014 came A Gathering of Poems about Cycling, Tour de Verne. Then in 2019, with George Surtees, he answered The Call of the Clarihue, the same year that he and Brian Johnston brought out Scotia Extremists, a collection of paired poems from the extreme of Scotland's psyche. There's also been an important historical anthology of Dundee poems, Whaleback City, co-edited with W.N. Herbert, his collaborator on the political poetry blog New Boots and Pantisocracies. Andy, you said on one of your blurbs, he, or someone said, I don't know if you said it, he takes his poetry from unlikely sources. I thought that was, that was quite a good quotation. It leads nicely into The Saints Are Coming, which is your most recent um, collection. That's a very unlikely topic. I thought it was a brilliant collection. Could you tell us a bit about the idea behind it? really enjoyed that book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. It, it came initially from something I'd seen on a road trip in Ireland. We were on holiday on the west coast of Ireland and we drove past one of the many signs that there are in Ireland to the shrine of or the fountain of Saint. And this one was the, I think it was the shrine of St. Fiacre. And I, being a, a librarian and an informationist, I thought I need to go and find out what St. Fiacre's yes. background was. It's such an unusual name. And it turned out that he was patron saint of a, quite a large number of things, one of which was Hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids, yes, I remember that part. Yes. <laughs> and I thought, uh, who on earth would assign the role of praying for hemorrhoids to a particular person? I, mean, I thought you'd made that up. And I looked, no, read your notes at uh, the back and you yeah, said, no, yeah, indeed, it no, is. Genuinely yeah. uh, is the patron saint of, uh, of, of hemorrhoid sufferers. So 
that became a poem and the poem became an idea well maybe there are more saints of unusual things and of course the wonderful wikipedia has a whole accumulation of all those portfolios that a saint might adopt or be given by the vatican council that decides on such things so there are patron saints of a number of of things that you think wouldn't need a patron saint the verbally Um, abused yes uh, disappointing children yes yeah (laughs) flight attendants well, these are such modern fascinations, certainly flight attendants, mm. you know, that when the, the the great majority of saints were created was before there were four digits in the length of the year, it was like 800 to 900 and, and thereabouts. So a lot of saints created before there was a need for uh, for you to pray for them, right. uh, pray to them for, for flight attendants or, or the internet or uh, uh, radiologists. So somewhere along the line, they have been given that job in more recent times. Mm. And sometimes the the assignation of a role is based on some very spurious or uh, distant connection. And, yeah. You know, the, the patron saint of comedians, for instance, was reputed to have made a joke while being burnt to death by the Romans as a martyr. And the story behind that is that there was an incorrect translation from what he's reputed to have said when asked whether he rec- recanted. And uh, a letter was missed from the translation that turned to something very, very sort of, it is finished or I, I am done, I am dead, uh, became uh, I am done on this side, please turn me over, which is deemed to be a joke about being roasted uh, alive in front of a Roman fire. Right. And that was where the, the, the job of being patron saint of comedians came from, an incorrect translation. Uh, uh, I am a donut moment. Yes, <laughs> that's right, that's right. And so your books and your poems tend to be about something, very definitely something. There's lots of poets out there that's not true of, people like John Ashbury and many others besides. Yes. I mean, yeah. how do you read? How do you enjoy such poems? Do you enjoy such poems? Do you, are you uncomfortable with poems that aren't obviously about something? Or I think I'm less attracted to things mm. that appear to be concerned with the poem and not with what the poem is talking about and they are clearly people who are talented wordsmiths and create something really very meaningful Mm. but it feels so metaphysical and vague that I sometimes feel this is not a poem that I can find a way into Mm. I remember reading the first few lines of a female poet uh, whose name I won't mention but after three lines I I still didn't know what the first line meant And I thought, you have already lost me. You know, mm. you, the chance of me reading to the end of this poem is now very limited. Mm. You need an in with a poem. Yeah. And whilst it has to be something that people would understand, it, it can't, again, push so far on that sort of jokey or slightly irreverent door that, yeah. uh, that that's the only door you can go through. It has, yeah. to, it has to have that, that weight behind it. But without the in, I find it difficult to, to really embrace the poem mm. Uh, so there are some poets that I just don't get. So uh, which poets do you turn to knowing that you'll get what you want from a poem or perhaps even you know, help you with your own work? I think I'm, I'm often coming back to the likes of Larkin and, mm. and Heaney. And mm. I know those are touchstones for many poets. Mm. But Larkin, because of his embrace of formalism, again, that also had a big effect on me that he, he rhymes and he rhythms and yeah. you don't know that he's doing it till yeah. you read on the page Absolutely. and I yeah. tried to do something of that but again his work is generally about something that's very interesting I first got to know Larkin when I was in Germany and I didn't have the books available I had tapes so I listened to the work and loved mm-hmm. the work didn't realise all this incredible rhyme yeah. stuff was, yeah. was going on. It's so subtle. And when you look at the other page or when you, you, you think yes. about it, it's extraordinarily complex. Going back to your The Saints Are Coming, that's full of formal 
ingenuity. I mean, I think the first poem is a series of monorhymes, isn't it, for the first, first poem of the book? And it just goes yes. on to all kinds yeah. of ghazal shortly after, so all kinds of different forms. So you're really pushing yourself with, in terms of the formal ingenuity, uh, which is always very satisfying. What about the next collection? We have those three, and then there's presumably you're thinking about the next. Is that going to be a, a new direction? Or, or, or uh, probably sadly more of the same old stuff. <laughs> right, well, that's I don't fine. know. Um, I, I have a sequence of, of sonnets. I mean, that is what most poets eventually, if you leave them alone long enough, will come up with a, a crown of sonnets. Mm. Um, the mm. sonnet is, it seems to be a design classic uh, yeah. in the poetry world in that you know, everybody feels that a sonnet is, it still has value and, and you can still write in that form mm. and, and be considered relevant. Mm. So I have a, a sequence of 14 sonnets, which uh, each of which is named after a, a classic of disco. Disco, that sounds such an awful dated term. Dance music of the 80s, 90s, and even the 70s. So it's kind of a playlist. And like a sonnet crown, it, it has that repeating sense of rhyme, yeah. which mirrors what you would get if you went to a club. And you and I are probably both old enough now to be ejected from most clubs, <laughs> uh, to speculate on your age, but I know my own, where one song seamlessly beats into the next one by matching really? the, the, DJ will, the DJ will will synchronise the beats so that one song blends into the next. And the mm-hmm. idea is the poems blend into each other uh, and become a, re- a readable sequence but each poem on something different. So that was, that's quite an experiment. Mm. Um, so, that, so, so just to explain, the, the crown of sonnets has, the, the final uh, sonnet in the sequence is uses the all the last lines of the previous 14, doesn't it? So you have to write the last sonnet first, don't you? In uh, effect, to make it work. You do, but I'm cheating with oh, that. Right. In that I don't, by the time I'd realised what I was writing, I, I, I'd gone too it's far. Too late. yes. yes. yes right. So I'm going to take some liberties with the... The, the formality very wise, and, very and wise. create a poem as the 15th that is that draws heavily from all 14 yeah. that go before but not necessarily by the last lines alone yeah sometimes you get like uh, Macbeth you know you've waded so far in blood that it, 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 you might as well carry on rather than turn back um, which is what I'm doing with this sequence so yeah, well, that's what Derek Walcott was always doing with his with forms so just play around with the form we talked about your own work we haven't even got on to the anthologies and you are a master anthologist an extraordinary number and I've been browsing through these loving these various anthologies so what's the appeal of the anthology do you think I mean it's talk of time of design classics of the anthology seems to you know, fill the poetry yeah. shelves in Waterstones I, I am as interested in involving other poets in daft ideas of mine as I am in writing my own work and mm-hmm. maybe this is to compensate for that perception before I mentioned that you know someone's going to find you out but at least with an an anthology most of the work is not yours so if you have a reasonable judgment as to what to include or you ask the right people if it's a commissioned anthology which they tend to be then as long as you're asking the right people and making it clear what the brief is you're going to get a decent selection but there's an awful to do a lot to do with the structure of the book and you've had this this wonderful idea which you've used in several books I think where, where you pair poems could you just yes. tell us a bit about that well again it would be lovely if that had been my idea originally <laughs> but um i'd seen something on facebook mm. uh where chris hamilton emery from salt and tim turnbull the, the very noble performance poet of many years had written opposing poems about two tv shows in the 1960s i think the champions and mission impossible and had kind of riffed off each other, but had written it in isolation. And I thought this might extend to an entire collection where we were doing the same thing, taking 
a, a theme and splitting it so that you had opposite ends of that theme. Mm. So Tony Curtis, Tony Soprano, you know, two Tonys, yeah. two different Doctor Whos, yeah. two made-up places from the movies uh, yeah. or from, from television. Mm. So I think it was Tannock Bray and Glockamora or something like yeah. that. I'm quite sure... Yeah. Uh, what I used in the end, but it was it was that idea that you can take one idea and people can write in isolation from each other, mm. but when you bring the poems together, they sometimes have a bit of a synergy against each other that neither poet realised because they were doing it isolated from each other. Mm-hmm. And I've done that twice with popular culture, mm. once with Scottish popular culture, which mm. was the one with Brian Johnston, Scottish mm. extremist. And I have plans to do more of that sort of thing. Mm. The big drawback with that is any publisher is like to say, "Hang on a minute." you're going to put 100 poets in here, all of them are going to want one free copy of a book. Yeah. Where's my profit margin going? So yeah, I, I think yeah. these are difficult to sell to a publisher, mm. um, but they are very uh, fun to do. And okay. Particularly, I think you said in an email that you felt that Scotia Extremist was your most representative book. And uh, I think it's Brian Johnston, the late Brian Johnston, in his introduction talked about the split personality of Scotland, which yes. was... So fed into the whole, the whole fascinating volume. I thought it's a sort of cultural study, really. That and the Dundee anthology, which perhaps more conventionally mm-hmm. laid out, but both fascinating. I mean, how do you regard those now? And do, are you going to do more? I hope so. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel that as an Englishman in Scotland, but in Scotland for quite a long time now, to get involved in things that are so at the heart of Scottish culture or, or the history of a place like Dundee, mm-hmm. there is that sense of being an interloper, but sometimes the insider who comes in and sees things in a different way can maybe offer a different perspective. So there were things in the Scotia Extremist collection of poems, for instance, that culturally I you just didn't get in England. Scotland the What is a you know, a much revered comedy troupe. Sadly I think None of them left now. Mm. Aberdeen based, speaking in a Doric accent. Mm. But all of Scotland loved Scotland the What. But they were never ever shown on the British television, on English English British television. No. So as a cultural reference point, I had nothing no. to say about them. No. But thankfully, Jackie Kay, who wrote about them, yeah. had plenty to say. Yeah. So that perspective, that incomer's perspective, as they call it in Scotland, as an incomer, gives me some insight into maybe a sharper uh, representation mm. of culture. But I sometimes have to ask who are these people or what does this mean and uh, <laughs> reveals how little I am Scottish and still English. So. There's lots more we could talk about that, but we're, we're running out of time. I haven't really asked you about your, your working life. I mean, there's something, is there something about librarians and poetry? I mean, Douglas Larkin, be, Larkin Lorraine Mariner and National Poetry. Yes. Um, is there something? I think it's it? an accident in my right, case yeah. in that if you expect because someone is a librarian, they have plenty of time to read the books and therefore mm. you know, absorb the written word. I didn't do an awful lot of reading the books in my, in my library. I spent most of my time teaching students. Mm. But there are a scary number of, of librarian poets. Mm. Uh, I'm co-editing Poetry Scotland, which is a broadsheet poetry thing that we, we've done for years in Scotland, mm. which has been done just on photocopied A4 paper for a long, long time. And my co-editor on that is a former library colleague who's mm. also a poet. And there's Douglas Dunn and there's Colin Will and there's any number of other librarian poets. Philip Larkin, again, we return to him. Mm. So poetry in libraries appears to work very well. Yeah. Uh, one feeds off the other, maybe. Mm. But in my case, I'm not a poet because I was a librarian, I don't think. Yeah. But apart from books, the internet seems to be opening up all kinds of possibilities. Many of our anthologies seem to have begun as kind of blogs or, or sort of gatherings of, yes. of poems from, yeah. from the wider world. I think you can get away with things on the internet that if you never expect to get them published, 
then you can invest time in things because you're not thinking about overheads and margins and how are we going to get this manuscript sorted out in this yeah. in space of time. If you're only putting something up every day or every week in a blog form, mm. then it's great when somebody then pops in and says, this is a really great idea. We'd like to publish the best of what you've yeah. done, which has happened in a few That's what editors instances. are for. They pick out the best. Yes. But the blog affords you space to talk about things that don't really matter because it is here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. A book, maybe less so. So, I mean, a great project, man. I mean, there's so many things I haven't asked you about. The otwitcheries, I'm not, not even quite sure what they are. Yes. What, what, what are your otwitcheries? Um, well, initially they were tweet-length poems in that they were posted on Twitter, which were elegies to a, a recently deceased celebrity, and by recent I, I usually meant within the last few hours. Right. So as everybody would break the news that so-and-so had died, being the ambulance chaser of the poetry world, I would immediately be thinking, can I get 140 characters that would sum up that person or some kind of elegy for their, their life. So it's not a million miles from the Clericue, which you've, no. you've anthologised with George Surtees. That's, that's true. Again, it's another wonderful, yeah. wonderfully entertaining book. Auden did a collection of Clericues, didn't he? Yes, yes. yes. I, mean, it's, I think poets are, sometimes feel liberated when you tell them you can write something frivolous and yes. daft. And George Surtees, who is the co-editor of the Clericue anthology, you could not find a more serious-minded and erudite voice in poetry, to mm. my mind, but loves that playful element of the yeah. clerihue. We tried doing the same thing with double dactyls, which are a little bit more restrictive, oh, yes. in that there are fewer people who can be turned into a double dactyl because of the number of syllables. Yes. And I won't go into details here, but yeah. basically there's only a very small number of people who could be double dactyled because they have to have a, a name that allows that. But with the clerihue, everybody's fair game, and mm. most people will be the subject of one before my life is over, I suspect. Um, opportunity for satire. There was a political yeah. element, and George Surtis is quite a political. I yes. think I feel that you are as well. It comes out in your poetry and the other things you've done. This project you've done with um, with Dublin Herbert. So, so there's a political dimension to your writing, isn't there? Yeah. Yes, and again, if you are happy to accept that these are ephemeral, and that this year's politics will be next year's political history, then mm. and publish on that basis then that works. Mm. And people who've been published on the various blogs that, uh, that stemmed from that relationship with Bill Herbert are aware that their work touched a, a moment in time and represented a, a feeling at a moment in time which may well have passed and may well not come again. So they are ephemeral, but they are... If people want to know what British society was like on that day, then this is a poem that says what we were like. When you're not writing poetry, you're not being a librarian, do you have other interests that feed into it? I'm sure you do. What, what, what kind of things do you... You mentioned to me in the car you like cycling. Yes, again, there are a lot of, uh, of poets who uh, who do things like cycle or uh, run marathons, mm. uh, climb mountains. Helen Mort is a great yes. uh, walker, and Simon yes. Armitage, a great walker. And yes. uh, do you find that walking helps you discover poetry? Yeah, I think po- mm. poetry on the bike is good. Is it? Um, well, because not, it's uh, more it's uh, more uh, solitary. You you are. It's another um, anthology you did, of course, the bike anthology. I haven't seen that one. But yes, it's, yeah. it's very limited uh, quantities of that available in the world these days because it mm. had a very short print run. Mm. But it, we're hoping that will go to a reprint because the Tour de France every year we've got course. another opportunity yeah. to resell the book. Tour de Ver, uh, yeah. Tour de Ver, indeed. But when on the bike, if you're on your own, you've got an hour and a half on the saddle, maybe for a short ride mm. and. Uh, plenty of time to, to to come up with lines as I do, so it's a good a good quiet space to 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 think mm. think poetic thoughts. So. And apart from getting on your bike, as it were, what advice would you give to someone setting out as a poet? 
show the work to someone else as soon as you feel able and start to be edited and be an editor of your own work. I feel that the poet that spends all their time inwardly looking at their own work and then at some point in the future slapping it down on the table of a publisher and expecting the publisher to love it as much as the poet does, that poet needs a chiding hand. Colette Bryce said, a poet's not finished so there's nothing left to take out. And I think there's a sense that some poets, myself included, want to gold plate it and add as many bells and whistles as possible and her editing methodology was to remove, remove, remove until it was absolutely bone sharp. And I would say that's my advice to, to poets, people wanting to get published, edit until there's nothing left to take out. Andy Jackson, thanks so much. It'd be lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening, John. Nice to talk to you too. That was Andy Jackson in conversation with John Greening. You can find out more about Andy on his website at www.andyjacksonpoet.co.uk And that concludes episode 384, which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 385, Anna Wilson speaks with Julia Copas about her significant three little things. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.